I hope you had a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And uh, have you started your, your, your New Year's resolutions yet? Yeah, I started mine. Um, some people do the CrossFitting thing. There's a whole CrossFit community. I've uh, started up the Nine Round community. Uh, it's awesome. You go to this gym and there's a coach there and they just make sure that you don't leave until you die. And so uh, I've gone twice already, 30 minutes of your life, but it feels like 15 hours, and they just yell at you until you can't breathe anymore. Uh, and uh, it's great. So that's my New Year's resolution, and some of you need to join me uh, there and suffer with me. I'm going to take some pictures because I'm concerned that God may be taking me home early, and I want you to know exactly what happened to me. <laughs> If that happens. Uh, another time, thing people do this time of year is they open up their Bible app. I want you to write this down, version, Y-O-U, the word version. Look it up. You need to download it. It's 100% free. All right? And then people say, you know what? I need to start reading the Bible more. And the great time to make a devoted commitment to start reading the Bible more, you can get that app, and it'll give you 100 different reading plans that you can try. I want to read through the Psalms. I want to read through the Psalms and Proverbs. I want to read through the Gospels. I want to read through the New Testament. Testament, want to read through the Old Testament. Uh, we believe the Bible will change your life, and it's time to jump in there and, and read it. I think I told the church a couple months ago, I just finished in November a two-year Bible reading plan of the Old Testament. Uh, the only problem is it was my third year. And people are going, man, you know, you didn't, that means you missed every third day. You're right, I did, I did. And you can view that pessimistically and go, oh man, you didn't do it on time. Or you can view that optimistically and go, man, we read the whole Old Testament. You know what I'm saying? And so I, I'm much more of the, of, the, of the latter version, which is optimistically, let's get you in there. This you version is awesome. If you're a month off, let's say you get a month off, there's a little thing you can click that says, catch me up. And once you press that button, it acts like you didn't miss a day. And it won't even tell God that you missed a month. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just advocating for you to get that app and get yourself in the Word this year, even if it takes you two years, whatever. Get in there and start reading it. But we got to get going because I got a lot to say and not that that much time to say it in. Uh, it is about uh, two years ago. It is uh, my 14th anniversary with my wife. We're living in Arizona. We're driving to Las Vegas, about four and a half hours away. We decided we're going to go see a show. Uh, we get there, you know, uh, we, we go to this really nice restaurant in the, we didn't stay in the Encore Hotel, we just borrowed its restaurant because it's a really nice hotel. Get in there, go to the, it's called the Red Eight Chinese Restaurant. Best Chinese food I've had since I lived in San Francisco, which we all know San Francisco has the best Chinese food in the world. Better than China. And so we're there, we eat the Chinese food, it's awesome. Then we walk to our show. The show we're going to go see is Mystere or Mr. Ray. I think it's Mr. Ray. My wife says it's Mystere. I'm the one with Ebonics and dyslexia. She's probably right. But we get there and we're there super early. And so I walk in. I'm in a tie and a suit. I don't often do that. I got this hot wife. We're walking on in. And somebody comes up to me and says, hey, where are you sitting? It's a person who works for the whole production. So I get out my phone and say, this is where we're sitting. Uh, Captain Spare No Expense Hurtado, nosebleeds. And so we walk in, and the guy goes, oh, no, 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 no. You can't sit in the nosebleeds. we got to upgrade your seats. How would you like it, Mr. Hurtado, if we upgraded your seats? And I thought, that's right. Mr. Hurtado's in a suit and a tie, and he deserves an upgrade. Moving to the east side apartments, that's funny. Anyway, so... <laughs> 
<laughs> That's hilarious. Anyway, so, I, so I'm, I'm like, honey, act like you've been there before. We're going on in. And we walk to the very front. They put us in the very front two seats, front row of the entire thing. And I think, that's right. That's right. You come early, dress nice, and they put you in the front row. And I'm thinking, I just got myself an upgrade, okay? And I love upgrades. Upgrades, the whole life should be just about upgrades. It's awesome. We get to the show. We sit in the front row. Little did I know that the whole thing is a ploy, Behold, they find one person. If you ever go to Vegas, you got to know this. They find one loser who wants an upgrade. <laughs> they put him in the front row. And then he becomes part of the show. <laughs> Big old dude, 450 pounds, six foot seven, dressed like a baby. He's got a diaper and a bib and a pacifier. And he's doing goo goo gaga at the beginning of the show. And all of a sudden, he looks at me and he goes, Papa. <laughs> and I'm thinking... I ain't that dude's papa. There's no way I'm that dude's papa. You're, you know, six foot, acting like a baby. I'm not, if I was your daddy, smack, you would not be acting like that as a grown man. Papa, he keeps on saying, well, he's talking to someone behind me. I'm just sitting there going, I'm not, you know, throws a ball at me. I ain't throwing it back. Somebody else throw the ball. I'm not, I'm not moving. I'm not doing. All of a sudden, he runs up, jumps off the stage onto the front row and says, Papa. And then the spotlight's on me and him. And now, oh, I see. So now I'm a part of the show. I end up in this golf cart. We're driving around the stadium. We end up on the stage. Every time I hit the stage, the crowd goes crazy, which, by the way, I really made the show. <laughs> Go to the back. They kick me to this back room where they have a diaper and a bib and a pacifier for me. So I'm now wearing a diaper, a bib, pacifier with my suit on, walking around the stage. Everybody's laughing at me. And, you know, I thought to myself, we have pictures. I'm, I'm not going to show you those pictures. Sorry, <laughs> nobody gets to see that picture. But it's a true story. I only tell two stories. And so uh, uh, sitting there, and the whole thing started. The whole thing started because I went from these lame seats in the nosebleed. I, I'm going to get an upgrade. There's going to be something bigger and better. That is the lesser. This is the greater. And I want the upgraded seats. All because I wanted upgraded seats. All because I thought, honey, see, when you hang next to me, we get the front row. Now I become part of the show. There was the lesser seats and there was the greater seats. And today, as we look in our passage together in the Bible, we're going to look at this lesser than greater kind of idea. What makes something lesser? What makes something greater? How does God classify the greater versus the lesser? What is the difference between the two? And how do we benefit from the greater? And that's what we're going to look at today in the book of Mark. Don't forget this concept of the greater and lesser, the upgrade and the non-upgrade situation, all right? So what we're going to do is we're going to go to the book of Mark, okay? Mark chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 1 through 8. But before we get there, before we can dive in, we got to do some background in the book of Mark, all right? This would be a good thing for you if you brought a little card, a little message notes in there. Write this down. Keep it in the pamphlet of your, of your Bible, whatever. Whenever we're going through the whole book of Mark, you want to go back and look at the context that Mark was written in. Who is he writing to? Why is he writing? It's really going to affect the way we understand the entire book of Mark. And so, I have a couple slides on the screen for you, but I'm not doing all the details on the screen for you. You're going to have to write down some extra stuff if you want to take some notes, all right? The author is Mark. Dun, 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 dun. Uh, big one there, right? Mark, um, and uh, we know uh, from Christian history that he probably traveled around with Peter, the apostle Peter, and as Peter preached about Jesus Christ and his life on earth, Mark was taking notes. Although Mark himself was not an eyewitness of Jesus Christ, he did follow Peter, kind of listened, studied Peter, and then that was the basis of him writing the book of Mark. 
It is the same Mark that we see John Mark in the book of Acts. It's the same guy, John Mark, that's the same one. He's the cousin of Barnabas, all right? He's the guy who gets in an altercation with Paul on the first missionary journey. That blows up. Paul says, I don't want you. Barnabas says, fine, we're going to split. Because of Mark and his actions, Barnabas and Paul split. Later on in their ministry, they actually get back together, and Paul begins that, hey, he's good. We're good together. Bring him to me. I love him. And so there was a parting of the way in the book of Acts because of this figure, John Mark, who ends up writing the book of Mark. When is the book written? It's written between 60 and 70 AD. All right, that you know, you think of AD after the death of Christ. We think of Christ dying around 30 to 34. There's all kinds of debate of what exact year, uh, but uh, we, we put it there. So this would be within one generation of Jesus Christ walking on the earth. This is so, so important. I got to stress this for a second. So, so important that you have a date of, of, of 60 to 70 AD. Why do we think that? I'll tell you this. Uh, it's because in 70 AD, this is like a Christian marker. You got to know this historically. A Christian marker, uh, the temple is destroyed in 70 AD. We know that historically apart from the scriptures that the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. Why is that such a significant factor? Because Jesus predicted that it would be destroyed. And it's written in Mark. It's written in Luke. It's written in Matthew. Huge prediction. Hey, by the way, guys, this temple wouldn't even be anymore. You might remember. Not even one stone will remain on the other stone. Everybody's going, really? This thing is going to get destroyed, really? And then it happens in 70 AD. But none of the gospels, none of the synoptic gospels, Mark, Luke, or Matthew, mention the destruction of the temple. Which you would think, if, if that was such a key thing in Jesus, uh, you know, it's one, one of the huge validating factors of Jesus' life, that he, well, you know, he could heal, that he could rise, raise from the dead, and that he could predict and foresell, foretell things. That's a huge one. So you would think Mark would go, and Jesus said it's, uh, the temple would be destroyed, and hey, guys, it was destroyed, you remember, in 70 AD? But he doesn't do that. Why? Because it was probably written before the temple was destroyed. Does that make sense? Now, why, why, why am I getting all this? This is so huge, especially when, especially when you talk about higher critics or skeptics out there who will do this. I don't like the Bible. I don't believe in miracles. And so therefore, we have to make an allotment for how these books came about. We've got 6,000 manuscripts from the Gospels and how they all correlate and you can compare them to each other. And they obviously were talking, they believed what they said, and the 6,000 documents kind of modifying each other, and yet there's no discrepancies. They're all accurate to one another. So how do we discredit this? How do we discount this? This is what they do. They say, you know what? Well, if it was written 200 years after Jesus walked on the earth, then you have enough time for a legend to happen. All right. You guys have played telephone before. We start over here. We give one word. We go all the way around the building. The word or the story changes by the time you get over here, right? That is a legendary theory. So if you have 200 years, that can develop. That can't develop in 30 years. You know why? Because people are still alive that were walking when Jesus walked on the earth. And so when people go, oh, well, Jesus didn't change water into wine. Oh, Jesus didn't walk on water. Jesus didn't heal the, you know, the, 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 the woman with a fever. Jesus didn't stop the woman. No, she's alive. And her, gran her grandma's alive. And, and they were there. We saw it. No, 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 we were there. That, that one's true. So if you have an earlier date of the book of Mark, it validates everything and leaves no time 
for there to be a legend that would develop. All right, we have the synoptic problem is the next one. I kind of got into this already. The higher critic or the skeptic says there's similarities and yet there's distinctiveness. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are so similar and yet they're so distinct. It's like, how did that, how can that possibly happen? We don't have another three documents like that that are so consistent with each other but yet so distinct from each other. Um, We would say this is not a problem. What problem is there? We believe God is overseeing the production of these materials, these gospels. All right, but some people say, no, we can't believe that. So obviously Mark was written first, and there's this book called Q, and Q, you get Q, which we have never found, is going to be where you get the distinctiveness, and then, and then Mark is where you get the similarities, and you put those together, and you have the Gospels. So obviously that must be the case, because they can't all be that accurate while being so distinct, unless there's a God involved, okay? And so we believe there's no synoptic problem. It's just God overseeing the writings of these documents. Let's go to the next one. Who's the audience? Audience are Roman Christians. These are Gentiles who, uh, because of the life of Jesus Christ, have come to faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, they, they, they have made a full conversion to Jesus Christ and followed him. Uh, the, the, one of the climatic features of the book of Mark is the Roman centurion coming to Christ and saying, you are deity, which would be huge for a Roman to say that because in their system, their God is Caesar. And he's saying, no, 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 Caesar's not God, Jesus Christ is deity. So it's very, very huge. Well, this is a whole bunch of these folks have now come to know Jesus Christ and their followers in Rome, and he's writing to these Roman Christians. Explains why all the Jewish customs are explained in the book of Mark. Explains why there's a Roman reckoning of time in the, in the book of Mark. Uh, there's few quotations of the Old Testament. We'll see one today, but very few, because the Romans didn't even know the Old Testament. They don't need that like the Jews would in Matthew. Rufus and uh, the father of Simon. Simon was the one who carried the cross of Jesus Christ on the way to his death. His son Rufus is mentioned in the book of Romans. All right, and so you're seeing the connection. There was a Roman church that uh, Mark was writing to. Now this becomes very important here. This is part where we want to take some notes. Uh, Because at the time in Rome, there's a lot of persecution for Christians. There's an emperor named Nero who, um, the word on the street, well, there's a big fire that came into town and, and basically annihilated like half the town. All right, and the word on the street was that Nero said it himself. Maybe he said it and it got out of control, whatever the case, but the rumors are going around town that Nero set his own fire and that's why half the town burned down. He needs a scapegoat. And so what he says is, you know what? There is these uh, you know, shady characters out there and they're the ones who started the fire and, he, and they began to become classified as Christians. And so now Christians are in the mold of these same people who need to be punished because they burned down the city. This is where we get the tradition in Christianity history where, where in Nero's backyard, the gardens of his backyard, he's using Christians as lampstands to, uh, and, and burning them at the stake so that he can have a party in his backyard. All right? That is what's going on in the book of, that's what Mark is writing to, this church that's experiencing all these difficulties, experiencing all these persecutions, and it explains why he jumps right in the action. He goes right in the action. I'm not going to tell you the beautiful story about Jesus in the manger. You think you're about to die. We're not going to genealogies, just straight in the action, and all he's going to do throughout the whole book of Mark, action, 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 boom, 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 snippets of what Jesus did. I'm not going to tell you about what Jesus said. I'm going to show you what Jesus did. I want to show you how mighty he was. I want to show you how powerful he was. So in the midst of your persecution and all this is going on, remember how powerful Jesus was. Remember how mighty he was. This is why he spent so much time at the end of the book talking about the passion narrative of Christ, one-third of the entire book. Uh, 
book of Mark is about the passion narrative of Christ. You might die for your faith. Don't forget that Jesus Christ died for you. Don't forget what he went through for you. And so in the midst of us, I want you to remember a mighty God. And I also want you to remember that he came with all that might and he died for you. Would you be willing to do the same for him? That's the background of the book of Mark. And so now let's dig in together. We're going to see on the screen a comparison or the comparison of two legendary leaders. First, John the Baptist as the lesser. John the Baptist as the lesser. Let's look in verse 1 of the book of Mark. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah the prophet. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice calling in the desert. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight his paths. And John came baptizing in the, in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside, all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Comparison of two legendary leaders. The first legendary leader is John the Baptist, but in this he's going to come out as the lesser, even though he was a legendary leader. The first verse, uh, 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 intro to the book, in the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ. Just straight to the point, I'm going to get to the beginning of the good news, the gospel, I think Jim said today, just means the good news of Jesus Christ. I'm going to just jump right in. He's the son of God. Now think about when he was saying that, who he's talking to, these Roman people who are, who've, been, who've, been, who've been indoctrinating this idea that their God is Caesar. No, no, no. Jesus is the son of God. This is the gospel, the good tidings, the, the, or the glad tidings. Uh, this would be something that would be expressed even in secular culture at the time. Uh, if Caesar had a child and the child came, great tidings. It's a form of, of the word gospel. Glad tidings that we have a new king. And so even, even in those days, whether you're a Gentile or, 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 or religious or non-religious, you would understand this idea of glad tidings. A, a new monarch has been born. And right off the bat, he is showing Jesus Christ and he's kind of pigeoning him against, you know, not, what's the word? Pit, pitting him against Caesar, which would be their God. It says that he's the son of God. Son being that he's man, he's human. God, son of God meaning that he's God's special agent, the Messiah, which we know the Messiah must be fully divine according to uh, Psalms 110 verse 1. And so he is, while he is man who walks on earth, he is yet still God, very God, 100% God. And he says, uh, the, the, the Old Testament proves or says that there would be one who would come ahead in the book of Isaiah, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice calling in the, in, the, in the desert. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Only a few times in the book, like I said earlier, is the Old Testament even quoted, but here's one time where it is. And it's kind of quoted in an interesting way. It says, uh, it attributes all the, uh, this to Isaiah, but there's actually three different passages that are kind of quoted here. We see uh, Exodus 23, 30, Isaiah 40, verse 3. We see Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. And he credits all of them to Isaiah. And probably the idea is these should all be understood behind the backdrop of, a, of an Isaiah theme. So understand it behind them. These are all passages that have to do with the wilderness or the desert. You got to remember Israel would be, would remember very clearly in their past that, 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 that the desert was a place of spiritual renewal. You remember them being in the Exodus and then they're in the desert and that's where they got closer to the Lord after they had unbelief in God, right? 
And here, now, God's going to draw all these people out to the desert again for a spiritual awakening again. And so it would be very familiar to them. But even that's for the religious crowd. The irreligious crowd would be very familiar with this idea of selling, sending a delegate or a messenger. If a king was coming to town, you would send these delegates or these messengers. Hey, everybody, the king is coming. Prepare yourself. And so they would very, oh, a front runner. We get that. Yeah, they do that all the time. And, and, and maybe they would take the rocks out of the way or take all the, the stubble out of the way so we can have this procession of this king coming into town. And so whether you're religious or non-religious at the time, you would understand, oh, okay, this idea of a front runner. Religiously, it was predicted in the Old Testament. Irreligiously, we understand that that happens all the time when a king comes into town. There's a delegate out saying, hey, he's coming. He's coming. That's who John the Baptist was. He was that delegate. He was that person that would declare the way and make the path straight. Verse four, and so John came baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing the sin, their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. So we, here we have John's baptism ministry. You might have heard of this before. He's a guy, he's in the wilderness. All these people are coming. Uh, they're getting baptized. This is not an, it's maybe a foreign concept to us in our current culture today. What is that? But it wasn't that foreign of a concept back then. If you were a non-Jewish person, a Gentile person, and you were adopting the Jewish faith, you would baptize yourself into that faith. And so the idea would be is I'm not Jewish, I, I'm not of the Jewish religion, I'm a Gentile by ethnicity, but I've been won over by Jewish thinking, I've been won over by the God of the Jews of Israel, and I want to convert myself into their faith. If you wanted to do that, you would baptize yourself with just, the word literally means to immerse yourself in water. That's what it means, taking a, taking a towel or a sponge and submerging, submerging it in water to where it's all the way wet. Okay? And so you would do that to signify that you're converting into the faith, the Jewish faith. What was startling about, what was startling about John, Bap, John the Baptist's baptism was he was asking Jews to do it. Well, why would the Jews have to do it? They're not converting into a new faith. This is there. Why are you telling the Jews to do it? And then why did they come in droves into it? It's all, they came in droves to do it. And it's almost like they're converting themselves, reconverting themselves into something that they already believe and know. It's almost as if they're saying to themselves, I know I'm Jewish. And I know that I have this special relationship with God. The whole Old Testament talks about it. Sure, that's true. But in this scenario, I know enough about myself and know about, enough about my past that I'm an outsider right now in comparison to this God. And so I'm going to get baptized because I, want, I don't want to be an outsider, especially if John the Baptist is right and the Messiah is coming. I want to get right with God. I want to get right. So what was startling is that Jews were doing this, and they were coming out in droves. Now, we've got to deal with this one little thing because it says, uh, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, I grew up a, a Roman Catholic, and so this idea of working for your salvation was very clear. You got to work for it. You got to work for it. Hopefully, your goods outweigh your bads at the end of your life, and then you get to go to heaven, and God goes, oh, yeah, you, your goods outweigh your bads. So you get to come in, and, and, and you live under this constant tyranny of, was, is this life good enough? Did I do enough? Did I do enough good? 
And so when I came to the Protestant uh, um, uh, version of Christianity, where he said, no, 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 it's not about whether your goods outweigh your bads. It's all about Jesus Christ and what he did for you on the cross. Oh man, that sounds real good. I got all this weight lifted off my shoulders. Not to worry about trying to earn my way there anymore. And then you get a passage like this. Well, it says, wait a second. A baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That sounds like a work. So I'm going to throw myself in water. I have to work my way there. I always come back to this one illustration because I think it illustrates it the best. If I tell you that I'm going to throw you into the lake for your birthday, the word for, I'm going to throw you into the lake for your birthday. Am I saying to you that I'm going to throw you into the lake so that it is your birthday? No, no, no. I'm saying I'm going to throw you into the lake because it is your birthday. Because of the remission of sins, these people were getting baptized. Because they already have it, they wanted to signify what's going on in their heart, and they displayed it with an action. And the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. They were coming out in droves from all over the place. Uh, the Jordan River was about 20 miles, at least 20 miles away from Jerusalem. It was 4,000 feet above Jerusalem. To, um, you ever take a hike before where you climb 4,000 feet? If these people were going to come, it took a significant amount of commitment for them to get to John so they can get baptized. And, and the idea is they kept on coming. The imperfect tense is used in the verb. And an imperfect tense is, is, is an action that happens in the past that can, has continual effects in the present. And so they kept coming. They just kept coming. Thousands upon thousands. It says all of Jerusalem came. And they just baptized, get baptized, confess their sins, actually it said. Did you see that? It may very well be that they would get there and they'd go, I've committed adultery. I'm strung out on drugs. Publicly saying it. They meant, this is what I've done, that's my past, I'm repenting of that, I'm turning away from that and walking in this direction because if the Messiah is coming, I need to clear my conscience for when he gets here. That's exactly what's going on. And so they would baptize, be baptized by John in the water after they maybe even publicly repented of their sins. Being able to say, call sin a sin, using God's dictionary and saying, this is, I'm going to agree with God's dictionary, that is wrong. Um, the perverted issues of my heart. I'm going to agree with God. That is wrong. That is sinful. And I'm going to turn away from it. I'm going to repent of that and move another direction. So what are the effects of John's baptism? Unbelievable effects. People coming from all over the place. In fact, he's called the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. You know why? Because he was the one chosen to make way the path for Jesus. He's the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. And yet in this scenario, he's still the lesser. What was the effects? The effects were this. Come, come out to the wilderness, come out to the desert, and you can clear your conscience of your sin because the Messiah is coming. Clear conscience of the past because the Messiah is coming. Get right with God because the Messiah, the Christ, is coming. And even though he had that big assignment and that many people came and that many people would, would look to him and he had that kind of popularity, Jesus Christ himself would say he's the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. He's still considered the lesser. Why? Well, it's because of who is greater. Let's look at verse 6. Comparison of two legendary leaders. One, John the Baptist, the lesser. And two, Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the greater. Let's look at verse 6. It says this. John wore clothing made of camel's hair and, and, and a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. 
And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John coming in camel's hair and a leather belt around his, eating locusts and wild honey. His message was simple. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. He, I will baptize, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Jesus, the greater in the comparison, in comparison to John the Baptist. John the Baptist comes, he eats wild locusts. Uh, you know, kind of if you're not, not going to eat meat, that could be a protein source type of thing. Uh, he, he ate honey. Uh, this is desert diet. Uh, it would just signify that you're very devout about your faith. Um, he looked like Elijah. Uh, there are many passages in the Old Testament that liken him to Elijah. We know that there's an Elijah coming in the end times again. There's this figure, Elijah, this prophet. There's supposed to be one like Elijah who's going to come before the Messiah. That was John the Baptist. He took that so literally, he'd start dressing like him. That's what the belt is about. That's what the hair is about. Trying to replicate. So that's, that's who I am. That's who I replicate. But there's this progression. Even though all those things are true, there's a progression between me and the one to come. Uh, he, the one coming is mightier than I am, is what he, was, what he was saying. I can't even untie his sandals. This would be something, you got to understand, they wouldn't even make slaves untie sandals. Like, it, it, that was too demeaning even for a slave to do. You are not allowed to make a slave untie your sandals if he was your slave. And what, what John the Baptist is saying, I'm not even worried to be a slave. He's much mightier than I am. I'm not worthy to be a slave. And in fact, his baptism is better than mine. You guys have been coming here and getting baptized and jumping in the water. His baptism is even better than my baptism. I just do it with water. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. His baptism is better. All I can do is help you with clear conscience of your past and, 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 and wash you on the outside with water. He can wash you internally. He can wash your heart. He can wash your soul. What's the big idea? It's on the screen for you right there. It says, Jesus doesn't merely clear your conscience. He cleanses your heart. Jesus doesn't merely clear your conscience. He cleanses your heart or your soul. Whereas John the Baptist would effectively clear your conscience. You can come here and, and, and repent of your sins and clear your conscience of Messiah's coming. Jesus' baptism is better. It's greater. It's mightier. Because it cleanses your very soul. Your very soul. So you never have to be cleansed again. So everything that's happened in your past that, that, that is not measuring up of God, everything that happens in the present that doesn't measure up toward God, and everything that happens in the future that doesn't measure up towards God is all taken care of when you're baptized by Jesus' baptism. That he can set you clean forever. Forever. He can take care of that. His baptism, it's greater. It's not just external. It is internal. John the Baptist, understand this. And John the Baptist would later say, I must decrease and he must increase. I'm the lesser, he's the greater. That's the whole point. I'm the lesser, he's the greater. And it's not unlike going to the movies, in a sense. I go to the movies a lot. You guys know the movies? I, uh, I made a deal with myself. Can't even say it with my wife. I made a deal with myself after I graduated with my doctorate in 2014. I figured that I spent 10 years of my life going to extra school that nobody else goes to. And so I deserve to see every Denzel Washington movie the night it comes out. 
First thing I did when I got done, I'm going to go back and see all the Denzel Washington movies that I missed for the last 10 years. And then when he makes a new one, I'm seeing it the very night comes up. I'll go by myself. I don't care anymore. I don't know. I got this whole thing figured out. You get there. Do you know that you can show up to those things 15 to 20 minutes late? You can. You won't miss a thing. You know why? Because they have these things called previews or, or the trailer to another movie. And they try, to, they try to sell you on commercials for these movies that are coming. And, and the trailers are never as good as the, as the movie. Do you ever notice that? The trailer is never better than the movie. And if it is, it's a sucky movie. Because if you can tell me in, 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 in five minutes and that's better than the two-hour movie, then you got something wrong going on, right? And so you go there and I say, you know, I can go there 15, 20 minutes late and I'll miss the thing. I do it all the time. People look at me, I get there, and it's like, yeah, I'm going to see this movie. Yeah, you're late. No, it doesn't matter. It's just previews. I'm going to go in there and give me my popcorn. I paid you your fee.